Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? Uh, I'm alright, Sarah. Um, I'm a little sleep deprived. It's been hard to sleep with the heat. Mm-hmm. Um, although it hasn't been super, super bad. It keeps like getting really hot and then breaking with a big thunderstorm and then getting hot again and then breaking with a big thunderstorm. That's pretty standard for Calgary in summer. Yeah, but it feels like the hot is more hot and the thunderstorms are bigger and louder. Um, Yeah, that's climate change, Ben. (laughs) It's making it hard to sleep at night. Yeah. Um, So I'm a little half there today. How about yourself? Um, yes, also kind of half there. I'm excited for today, if not for the movie, because it is our wedding anniversary. That is very true. Happy anniversary, dear. You too. We've been married six years today. Yes, almost as long as we've been doing the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we started the podcast in 2017. Yes, we would have been married two years by then. That's right. So if you want to keep your marriage going, people... Start a podcast that has no ending. (laughs) Because then you're forced to stay together. (laughs) To keep doing the podcast. (laughs) Well, why don't you tell us what we are watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching a movie called The Man Without a Body, Mm -hmm. which is from 1957, and it claims to be directed by Charles Saunders. But it is not directed by Charles Saunders. Yeah, isn't that's like a real name though, right? Like that's yes, someone's it's a actual real person. Name. Yes. Okay. But the film is actually directed by W. Lee Wilder, infamous, infamous guy. Yeah, a lot of this movie's production is based on lies. <laughs> and I'm. You mean there isn't actually a man without a body? <laughs> Uh, that part is fictitious. Yes. Okay. So I, uh, I can tell you all about some of those lies, uh, here today. Uh, in some ways you could say that this movie came about because Guido Cohen lied in a job interview. Mm -hmm. Uh, Guido Cohen was born in Italy in 1915 and he came to England in 1929 and was interred on the Isle of Man during World War II as an enemy alien. After his release, he was hired by Italian film producer Filippo del Giudici as company secretary of Two Cities Films, an Italian-British production company based in London and in Rome. Two cities. Yep. In the late 1940s, Two Cities was bought out by the Rank Organization. (laughs) And... (laughs) Let me just hit pause there for a minute and tell our listeners about a good joke I made. Okay. Uh, so it was the middle of like the heat dome, uh, you know, plus 40 here and Ben and I are sweating. It's, it's hot times. Mm -hmm. And so I go into his office to like, I don't know, open the window or do something. And I passed by your office chair and I was like, oh, is your office chair a British monopoly? Cause it's rank. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) You're not even going to acknowledge my joke? (laughs) I laughed. That's how you acknowledge uh, jokes. Okay. I I thought you might be like, that was a good one. (laughs) Good one, Sarah. So producer Sir David Cunningham asked Cohen if he had any experience subtitling films. And Cohen lied and said yes. Yeah. Uh, He was assigned to work with a man named Lou Watt, who quickly realized that Cohen had no idea what he was doing. And quickly showed him the ropes on how to subtitle films. So starting out in the rank organization as a subtitler, Guido Cohen worked his way up until he felt ready to start his own production company in 1950 to produce cheap B-movies, partnered up with director Charles Saunders, who had entered the industry in the quota quickie days of the 1930s. 
By the 1950s, there was a slightly different system in place to support the British film industry called the Edie Levy. Now, the Edie Levy was a tax on box office receipts that was put in place in 1950, named after a treasury official named Sir Wilfred Edie. Uh, It was felt that a direct subsidy to the British film industry from the government might lead to objections from American film producers. So it was decided that an indirect levy was uh, like more suitably beneath criticism, Mm -hmm. I guess. A little subtler, I suppose. So the way the levy worked was that a proportion of the ticket price was taxed. And then that was brought into a pool, and then half of that was distributed back to British exhibitors, theater owners, as kind of like a rebate on the tax. And then the other half was to be divided among qualifying British films in proportion to UK box office revenue, uh, with no further obligation to use that money to like invest in future productions. So you could essentially get like, a good chunk of your money back if you were a qualifying British film, depending on how much box office in the UK your film generated. Mm -hmm. Uh, In order to qualify as a British film, a minimum of 85% of the film had to be shot in the UK or Commonwealth, and only three non-British salaries could be excluded from the costs of the film. Are they counting the salaries as cast or cast and crew cast and crew okay yeah the levy was highly successful causing an influx of american producers to the uk to produce films as they were now cheaper to produce there than in the u.s uh this all led to a boom in uk film production through the 1950s 60s and 70s uh which you can see not just with hammer horror but with the rise of the james bond series um Richard Lester's like Beatles comedies, the like big rise of British comedy as a genre in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably as, Monty Python as well. The classic films of Stanley Kubrick, which were all produced in Britain, um, among like a lot of other movies. The levy was terminated in 1985 due to dwindling cinema attendance in the UK. So the levy is what led Charles Saunders to be credited with directing The Man Without a Body uh, when really he had nothing to do with it. Oh, is Wilder... Wilder's American. That's right, because he's Billy Wilder's older brother. So Saunders was on set every day for union purposes, but he didn't do anything. Um, all throughout the three-week shoot of The Man Without a Body, which was budgeted at a mere 20,000 pounds. So, yes, as we've mentioned, the actual director was W. Lee Wilder, uh, William Lee Wilder, the older brother of famed filmmaker Billy Wilder, whose actual name is Samuel Wilder. Um, We've seen W. Lee Wilder's films before. They're not good. Yeah, he had originally been a purse maker in New York until 1945 when his younger brother won the Academy Award for Best Director for The Lost Weekend. And so the older Wilder packed up and headed to Hollywood and started trying his own hand at filmmaking, first with short films and then with feature films after founding his own production company. That company, Planet Film Plays produced a number of low-budget movies, which Wilder would produce and direct, and then his son Miles would write, starting with Phantom from Space, then Killers from Space. A sequel? No. Okay. And, of course, The Snow Creature. Yes, that is on the list. It is I believe the, it's the second last. That is correct. The second lowest ranked movie on our list. That's bad. Yes. Uh, We've got nearly 200 films on the list, I believe. Yes. So this father-son team produced a few more movies together after The Snow Creature, including a noir thriller called Fright that sometimes gets, like, credited as a horror movie. It's like a Bridie Murphy take where a woman has a traumatic experience 
watching the police arrest a murderer. So she goes to a hypnotist to deal with her trauma. And the hypnotist finds that she was in a past life, a baroness who was in love with like a foreign prince. So then the hypnotist, in order to, I think, like con her out of her money, springs the murderer from jail and has the murderer pretend to be the reincarnation of the prince she was in love with in the previous <laughs> life or something like that. Wow. That's that's convoluted. Yeah. But so is anything else with Bridie Murphy at the center of yes. it. Yes. So W. Lee Wilder came to the UK to shoot The Man Without a Body, uh, but Son Miles stayed at home in the US. The two kind of split. Miles went on to write a lot of TV in the 1960s. Um, the script for this movie was written by William Grote, who has no other credits. How do we know that that's not a pseudonym and it's actually like William Wilder himself? We don't. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to tell you everything I know about William Grote. He wrote this movie. <laughs> Uh, the lead actor here is American actor Robert Hutton, who was born in 1920 in New York. And he was one of those actors who kind of got his start in World War II playing leading roles because all of the like actual leading men were away fighting. He was thought to kind of resemble Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> so he got kind of like bargain Jimmy Stewart roles in sure. the 40s. You want the sun? He'll bring you the sun. <laughs> The actor in this movie, probably best known to movie buffs, is George Coloris, who was born in England in 1903, got his start on stage in 1926, moved to Broadway by 1929, was acting in Hollywood by 1933, and then in 1936, he met young Orson Welles, oh. who convinced him to join the Mercury Theater Company and play Mark Antony in his acclaimed modernized version of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. In Wells' debut film, Citizen Kane, George Cloris plays Walter Parks Thatcher, uh, Kane's legal guardian. Cloris uh, continued to appear on stage and screen uh, throughout the 1940s. He returned to Britain in 1950, uh, where he mostly continued his stage career with appearances in film, television, and radio here and there. Cool. Uh, another minor actress who movie buffs might recognize in this movie is Serbian actress Nadia Reagan. Uh, no relation to the president? No, no relation to the president. <laughs> uh, her full name was Nazdada Podragan, uh, and she was born in 1931 in Nice in Yugoslavia. Uh, her father was killed by German execution squads in the Second World War. And uh, after the Soviets liberated Yugoslavia, Nadia began acting while she was studying philosophy at the University of Belgrade. She sort of got like scouted, started appearing in Yugoslavian films, then from there in like Yugoslav German co-productions, and then from there into German movies, and then from there she made the leap to English films when she moved to London in the 1950s, which she later regretted she kind of considered it to be like career suicide because she didn't know any English. Oh, okay. So she got kind of typecast as um, like spies mm -hmm. and femme fatales. And she was mostly cast for her looks more than her acting. Like she got cast as like exotic foreign women kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the two roles that people probably best know her from today are uh, she's one of the few actresses to appear in two Bond movies as two different characters. Um, she is Kerem Bey's mistress in 1963's From Russia With Love, and she is the belly dancer in the pre-title sequence in 1964's Goldfinger. She retired from acting in 1968, um, basically because she wasn't really satisfied with what she was doing. Uh, she became a reader for Hammer Films, and then from there became a publisher, and then from there became an author. Uh, what What do you mean reader? Like someone who would a like, script reader. So someone who would read through the scripts and say, "Hey, I think this one has promise." Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, she passed away in 2019. 
Oh, so fairly recently. Mm-hmm. The Man Without a Body was shot at Twickenham Studios, uh, but also features some on-location shooting at Madame Tussaud's Wax Museum. Oh. Yeah, which is kind of cool. It was given an X certificate upon its release, which the distributors wanted on purpose. Mm-hmm. And it was released in the UK in May of 1957. Uh, very few critics reviewed the film upon release, but reviews from both then and now tend to savage the picture as one of the worst ever made. Oh, um, great. The most positive review I could find refers to it as entertainingly absurd. Well, you know, we, we've watched Plan 9 from out, Outer Space. Sure. So I would also describe that as entertainingly absurd. Right. As this may not surprise you, uh, this movie is in the public domain. I am not aware of any like home video releases I would particularly recommend, uh, but it is on our YouTube playlist. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, um, you can wait to hear if we say whether it's good or bad, uh, but you can find it on our YouTube playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will let you know what the quality is of The Man Without a Body from 1957, directed by W. Lee Wilder. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Man Without a Body from 1957, directed by W. Lee Wilder. Sarah, what'd you think? Uh, it's a bad movie. Yes. Um, I was so bored. <laughs> I just wanted something, anything to happen, but more than anything, for it to end. Mm. What did you think? I think this is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, I think Kurt Seedmack has a lot to answer for. Um, <laughs> Are you, <laughs> you putting this movie on his conscience? Yes. <laughs> um, and I also... Listen, death of the author. He has no control over what people do. With the shitty, shitty ideas that he has put into this world. Yes. He's put good ideas, too. That's true. So... I don't know how you've like how you're planning on doing the plot synopsis for this movie. So I just want to give like a a warning right at the top because I have a fear that if you were to just like say what happens in this movie, Mm -hmm. it might accidentally sound interesting, really rad. But trust me, listener, (laughs) this movie is very, very, very bad. Yeah. Uh, pretty full of filler Mm. uh and i'm going to be cutting out a few characters just to like streamline this yeah there's a lot of people in this movie who don't matter um well i'm sure they matter to someone then (laughs) they matter to the actors for whom their existence meant a paycheck yeah right uh so our five main characters that i will just put out there okay, before yeah. I dive in. Mm-hmm. We have businessman Carl Broussard, mm-hmm. um, his ward Odette, mm-hmm. um, his doctor, Dr. Merritt, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Merritt's assistant, Jean Kramer, and uh, his other assistant, Dr. Lou Waldenhouse. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's one important character you've left out. Nostradamus. <laughs> see that coming (laughs) but did he probably not uh i i have nostradamus facts excellent later on excellent but i will give those after the plot synopsis okay because otherwise like how we felt with the movie we'll just never get through this (laughs) so it's set in contemporary times um so 1957 
and Mr. Carl Broussard is a big businessman. Um, never quite clear what exactly he does. Right now, though, um, he works with stonks. <laughs> he's a he's a businessman. He's got he's he, got, he, he does like he's like a stockbroker. He buys oil wells at some point. He's rich. And like ships. He's and, just a rich guy. He yeah, has a lot and, of holdings and assets. Yeah, and he's yeah. playing with stonks. Yeah. Um. However, he has a big inoperable tumor affecting his sight, memory, and reason. Mm-hmm. Now, his doctor out in New York, because since he's a stonk man, uh, he lives in New York. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I don't know how to <laughs> stock man. Yes, it's it's stocks. He does stocks. Yeah, Reddit has ruined me. Right. But his doctor is like, hey, I know of this experimental doctor out in London. His name is Dr. Merritt, and um, he's done some like interesting work. He might be able to help you. So Broussard, who has like all the money in the world, is like, money is no object. Let's go to see Dr. Merritt. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when he goes to see Dr. Merritt, uh, he sees some of these experiments. They have a monkey head. Um, that is alive on a table and kept alive through artificial organs. And they plan and succeed to transplant this head onto a new monkey and see what, see what happens. Yeah. The, the, it, there's a monkey. It's like a circus monkey had a accident and got a concussion or a brain owie or something. <laughs> So they're going to transplant That's it. That's the official word That's that right. the Dr. Merritt uses. So they're going to transplant it a new head off of a pet monkey that's been dead for six years. Yes. Um, if that doesn't make sense to you, just put a pin in that. <laughs> so Broussard is like, well, perfect. Like, do this to me with a human brain because my body's fit and I I want to keep working and making money and all these things and... You know, money's no object. Mm -hmm. Do this. I'm the most powerful man in the world because of money. Mm -hmm. It is thematic that this is a character we are encountering as billionaires go through a space race. Sure. Anyways, so Merritt is unsure about this. He's like, you'll condone murder. Uh, and Broussard's like, at any price. Oh, yeah, because there's a thing about, like, where are you going to get the brain? Yeah. And Broussard's just like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm rich. I'm going to just take it. Yeah, and Merritt, you know, like I said, he's unsure, but there's not enough character development or even an outline to him to really have him go like, no, I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just like, well, if a brain shows up, I guess I will do things. Right. Um, and not like a look the other way kind of situation. He, he just, he's bland as fuck. Yeah. Um, so Broussard begins to work on sourcing a brain. Now this brain needs to be smart enough. It needs to be cunning enough to be Broussard, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so he, he decides to do some research at Madame Tussard's wax museum mm-hmm. and, uh, gets told about Nostradamus. Now, quick side here. We didn't really talk about Madame Tussard in the beginning. Uh, We've talked about her in the show before because of wax-related things. Um, So if you want to hear more about her and her homes of wax, you can listen to episode 160 where we cover House of Wax. But probably the most detail as well as like why wax museums with horror uh, will come in uh, our episode on Ministry of the Wax Museum, which was episode 38. Now that Broussard is like, ah, oh, yes, Nostradamus, his brain is worthy. Uh, he travels to France to dig up Nostradamus. Now, Merritt has said that, like, as long as the body is preserved and not buried so right uh because then of like decomposition whatever um but it doesn't otherwise it doesn't matter how old the body is yeah which is why like this will work yeah because nostradamus is like in a tomb he's like embalmed yeah he's in a crypt which i still i still don't think his even if you had him embalmed i don't think his like body his head would look like how it looks in this movie Meanwhile, Broussard's ward, Odette, 
is secretly singing Merritt's assistant, Lou Waldenhouse, who I will henceforth just call Lou. Which I think is all the movie ever calls him. I don't remember hearing Lou's last name. I don't remember hearing the doctor's last name. Ah. So (laughs) these names are all new to me. So Odette shares with Lou that Broussard is pretty controlling. He showers her with jewelry, um, but really only because he considers her his. Her dad was a business partner of Broussard's and presumably died. Mm -hmm. And now Broussard has been looking after Odette in his mind, it seems, with the idea that she will eventually marry him, even though she could be his daughter. Yeah, she is his ward slash mistress, basically, like as far as he's concerned. Yeah. So that's a subplot. Broussard gets Nostradamus's head. (laughs) When you're rich, you know. Yeah. Um, and Merritt begins the process to revive this head. When we see it, it kind of looks like a mummified head, I think. Yeah, a little. Yeah, and then as they start to revive it, over the next 22 days, it grows hair and is, like, looking a little bit more, uh... Alive? Alive, I guess. So, Nostradamus awakens and knows who he is and you know, is talking to the doctors and is fairly coherent. (laughs) Pretty fascinated by what's happened. A little creeped out, too. He's like, this is unnatural. Um, And the doctors are all like, yeah, so this is what electricity is. And you predicted airplanes and like, and like Hitler. And it's like, no, he didn't. He didn't do any of that. But, you know, pin in that for Nostradamus facts later. Yes. This new segment. Now, Broussard, you know, he's he's a dying man. Um, and despite his doctors being like, you need to rest because you are a dying man. He's been going all over Europe, digging up heads, that sort of thing. So he is um, growing more desperate and more like dizzy and, and all these things. So he goes to Nostradamus and is trying to convince him that he is going to be Boussard. Like, no, no, you're not Nostradamus. You were born when I was born and you had these childhood experiences. Nostradamus is like, no, I I was born in 1503. I am Nostradamus. Yeah. So this is an element of the movie's plot where I don't know how much of it is the writer not knowing how his own stories, fiction works, or if it's supposed to just be like, Boussard not understanding how things work or or what but like you may notice that a key flaw in the idea that like (laughs) I'm gonna live forever and fix my brain tumor problem by getting a brain transplant is that then that's not the things that make a person who they are we usually sort of consider to be part and parcel with their brain yeah and this is a mistake that like we've been seeing brain transplant movies make since the start of brain transplant movies this kind of confusion about like if i put your brain in my body i'm not gonna be just me with your brain yeah and so the movie's really confused Mm -hmm. on this particular point because they sort of treat a brain transplant as if it was like a heart transplant where like the person is sort of just a thing that will continue to be and you've just got a new organ in there. But the movie does address the idea that like, well, no, the brains will have different knowledge and memory. And when they're talking about the monkey, Dr. Merritt's like, yeah, so it's like a pet monkey's brain that we're going to put in this circus monkey. But like, it's a very intelligent pet monkey. So it'll be able to be trained back to like circus performance monkey levels yeah and like the body would like still have like the muscle Muscle memory memory and all that so Boussard seems to think that what he's gonna do is train Nostradamus's brain to be him yeah except that he needs to be in your body my dude and Nostradamus doesn't want to be him yeah I am Nostradamus (laughs) yes but Broussard is, you know, a man who doesn't take no for an answer. Because um, he's rich. So he, eventually he, like, gives Nostradamus a list of all of his holdings and is like, okay, you can tell the future, you know, you're, you're super smart. What should I do? And Nostradamus is like, sell. Okay, cool, we'll sell. And that 
ruins Broussard, and Nostradamus knew it would. He was like, I'm going to fuck this dude over. Broussard is penniless, and he catches Odette running out on him. He follows her to Lou's apartment and kills her, strangling her with the jewelry he bought her, and then waits and attacks Lou when he arrives home. Uh, They have a bit of a chase scene back to our main doctor's office, uh, and that's where Broussard finally shoots Lou and uh, basically, like, hits him in, like, the spinal cord. Something is wrong. Like, he... He's gonna die. He's going to die, and there's something wrong with his, like, brain spinal cord. Um, And then he disappears into the night. But not before... Okay, he leaves and then he comes back because of... Several times. Several times because of B-movie. But he shoots Nostradamus, but he's having, like, the double vision, so he misses the actual head and just hits some of the equipment. So, having to act quickly to save Lou, as well as Nostradamus, (laughs) Mr. Merritt, Dr. Merritt, uh... He'll be a Mr. Merritt after the events of this film. (laughs) He'll take his medical (laughs) license away. Dr. Merritt puts Nostradamus's head onto Lou's body. Which, I get that he's trying to save Lou and that he's trying to save Nostradamus. But for the reasons I outlined earlier, I don't think this saves either of them. Yeah. I think you've killed both of them and made a new thing. Yes. So Broussard is on the run, the police are after him, and he comes back to Dr. Merritt's clinic, um, and this is when he discovers the new... <laughs> Nostradamus Lou hybrid. Frankendamus. Uh, which I will now call Nostlu. Nostlu. Okay. That's what we're going with. Um, so he discovers Nostlu and it's in this fucking giant head cast. It it, it, it looks so funny. It's like they took so I don't know what they used for the effects for I feel like the natural thing to do for Nostradamus's head when it's like sitting on a table talking would have been to cut a hole in the table and just have poke a guy's head through. But the head they've got looks like it's a mask or a marionette or a puppet or something because it doesn't really look real. And then it looks like what they've done here for the ending is they've taken that and they've like put it on the actor who plays Lou's shoulders and then to like cover up how they've attached it, he's just got this big like box cast on around the head which honestly makes it look like he's like wearing a TV yeah. on his head that Nostradamus is on the screen of or something. It's... Like not quite Modoc, but right. like close, you <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah. Um, no, like what they did with uh, the actor who plays Nostradamus is they do have like face stuff on him. Mm. Um, but you can tell it's a real dude with the way he his eyes move and the yeah. way his mouth goes. Um so then it's just full that actor but with the cast on his face. Right. It's it's goofy looking is the point. Oh absolutely. It's not scary at all. But uh Nostalu, um he he's mute. <sighs> yeah, so Ben was on the right track about like this Franken Domus thing. Bussard gets scared and runs um and nostalu escapes and goes after him not before scaring nearly to death and we get a little bit of a uh, chase scene the police get involved um they make it to a school that looks more like a church where nostalu goes in and broussard is following because he's come back onto the trail yeah at some point Boussard running away from Noslu turns into Boussard following Noslu for no reason, just because like we have Noslu, Boussard, the police, the police, and Merritt then, and Jean. Right, and these groups are running around after each other, and I think we only have two sets. Right, there's like two or three streets that they all just keep running up and down with no real regard to like screen direction or who's chasing who. He just kind of does it enough times with everyone running in different directions that I feel like Wilder was just hoping you'd lose track of who was chasing who in what direction so that we could end up with Bussard chasing Noslu at the end. So Noslu is going up the steeple steps. And the bell tower. Yeah. And Bussard is following and he gets to the top and this is when everyone else, like the police, Merritt, Jean, arrive and they're at the bottom of the stairs and they're like, stop 
come back down. And Broussard looks down and his, you know, headache, double vision starts and he gets dizzy and he falls to his death. And then the next thing anyone knows is the church bell or school bell is ringing and they look up and Lou's body is falling, but Nostradamus's head and the cast is uh, up in the rope because he hanged himself. And that's the end. Which implies that Merritt did not do a very good job attaching that head to that body. No. <laughs> Unless Lou is like really fucking heavy and just ripped those like staples <laughs> out, you know? So are you ready for some Nostradamus facts? Okay, let's let's have them. Okay. So in the movie, um, when it's like, my God, it's Nostradamus, they list off a few things that he is considered. So they go, oh, he was a prophet, a mathematician, a physician, and like some other An things. An astrologer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so no, <laughs> he actually explicitly avoided the title prophet. Mm. Um it's got biblical connotations, which are uncomfortable. Yes, and also he didn't really consider, despite calling his big book the prophecies, he didn't really consider himself as someone who was telling the prophecies because what he was doing was taking um, what other people, like saints or like the Bible or whatever, mm. um, literature, uh, what they have said about the future or the past, taking those books throwing them into the air, having them land, and then looking at what page they fell on and making presumptions based on that. So he's like, I'm not predicting or prophesizing anything. I'm just writing down what the books tell me. Right, which is a form of divination. Like if you're, you know, it's like throwing bones. It's like if you're doing something random and mm -hmm. then saying that that random thing is telling the future, that's a form of of divination yeah but he's like i'm not saying this is happening so right. i'm not a prophet part of his apprehension around that title is because he was catholic um so kind of that biblical connotation but also uh he was really concerned that the spanish inquisition was going oh, yeah. to be like knocked down his door that never happened because um he wasn't doing witchcraft he was doing astrology mm -hmm. a natural science mm -hmm. As far as physician goes, uh, he was kicked out of med school because he had worked as an apothecary. Now, um, not exactly a one-to-one, -one, but you could think of an apothecary person. They're just called apothecaries, yeah. right? You could think of them as like uh, pharmacists. Yeah. But because it was considered a trade, uh, it was not allowed at the med school he went to. So he got kicked out. Yeah, there was like a very strict delineation between like yeah, what we would now call like a pharmacist versus a physician versus like even a surgeon. Yeah. Like a physician was not a surgeon. A <laughs> surgeon was a thing that a barber did and, and things like this. Yeah. Now, after that, he did travel the country to learn herbal medicine mm -hmm. and came up with a, uh, a pill that would cure the plague and such. It's likely because of the work that he did with those kind of medicines that people just naturally assumed he was a physician mm, and like a doctor. Sure. Yeah. Um, so as far as astrologer goes, apparently he was really shitty at actually like coming up with people's charts. <laughs> um, he would often make mistakes. Uh, the charts being like, Oh, your sun's rising in Leo, your right. moon's rising in Virgo or yeah, whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, but he would make predictions if you came to him with your chart already in hand. Um, so he was kind of most famous at his time for an annual almanac he would put out um, that was based on astrology. But what he's kind of most known for nowadays is this book called The Prophecies, where he wrote uh, in basically like a quatrain poetic structure about the future. And as I said, this was more, you know, throwing up a book, seeing what came out when it landed. Um, and he would do this with um, literature, with history, um, with what uh, other people who had actually claimed to have made prophecies, mm. what they had said. And it was almost like a way of like being like, all of the other things are bullshit. Here's my literature review of actual prophecies that are actually going to happen. Mm. So that's Nostradamus. Yeah. So like 
the thing is, is you hear all of these things get said about him over and over again about like, oh, he predicted Napoleon and he predicted helicopters and he predicted like these specific things. If you read like any of his stuff. It's so vague. It's just, yeah, because it's just a bunch of random bullshit. What is really funny is you'll have people be like, no, Nostradamus was right. But then have different interpretations about what yeah. an event what what a quatrain is referring to someone will be like oh see this is him talking about 9-11 or a different person who also believes nostradamus was right will say no that quatrain refers to the invasion of napoleon yeah exactly because it's all just vague fortune cookie nonsense and you're applying meaning to it after the fact yeah right like there's nothing in him where he's like and then napoleon will do these things like there aren't specific Mm -hmm. things yeah, so I'm not saying Nostradamus was full of shit. What he was doing with, like, the divination, um, like, he, he's not, like, a snake oil salesman. But he's no, like, more or less right about any of the nonsense that he was blabbing about than any other... Person at the time. ...doing the same kind of shit that he was. Yeah. Kind of the only reason why he's stuck out in literature uh, and, and in, like, pop culture is um so he was buried in france uh i forget where it doesn't matter um but he was dug up during the french revolution to try to like preserve his corpse oh interesting and then reburied and then because of that people were like oh well yeah nostradamus he wrote about this stuff right and then like kind of came back Mm. into pop culture Mm. like that um so yeah not (laughs) He's just some guy. He's just some guy. So. He can't help you with your stocks. Right. So. So back to this movie. Right. Yeah. One of my big frustrations. So the reason why I say Kurt Siedmack has a lot to answer for. Yeah. Is because thanks to Kurt Siedmack and like. Donovan's brain. Donovan's brain. Which is like. I'm sort of placing under an umbrella. Like Donovan's brain. The lady and the monster. Black Friday. All of the Kurt Siedmack projects that kind of have the same basic through line mm-hmm. that this movie does, where it seems like the only plot line anyone can think of for Brain in a Jar movies is making it about old, dying, rich guys who want to continue their convoluted business plans after death. Yeah. And I don't care. Like, I get the idea that, like, okay... You know, there's a reason why, like, when people talk about, like, urban legends about, like, who's cryogenically frozen, it's Walt Disney and not my dad. Yeah. Right? Like... Well, I mean, your dad's still alive, so... Sure. But it's, like, who has the money to do something, and you know, so crazy? Uh, and it would have to be, like, someone super, super rich and super, super full of themselves. And so, like, I get why that makes sense. It's, like, who's going to bankroll the mad scientist to keep them alive after death by keeping their brain in a jar or whatever? But, like... The audience doesn't give a shit about seeing this character then, like, go to their stockbroker and, like, be like, sell these oil wells and tell these ships to go here. Like, nobody fucking cares about any of that shit. They all just seem to think that this matters, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't. Of all the iterations of this idea we've seen, this one makes the least sense, because as we've said, like, it's not my body is dead, help my brain live on in a new body. It's my body's fine. My brain is dying of cancer. So give me Nostradamus's brain. Yeah. It's like, it could have been made more clear if Broussard was talking about his legacy. Right. But the legacy of his business and of his name, but that's not really there. He seems to literally think that they're going to put Nostradamus's brain in his body. And then Nostradamus will just become Broussard. And somehow Mm -hmm. that will mean that he's still alive. Yeah, um, he uh, he failed biology. Well, and it's, as I said earlier, sort of unclear whether the movie doesn't understand how its own mad science works or if it's supposed to be that the characters don't get it because there are a lot of, like, why would you do this style questions in this movie mm-hmm. that sort of all get lampshaded by the fact that when the movie starts, Boussard is already out of his head, Yeah, right? Like, when the movie starts, he's already, like, hearing things and can't follow conversations and is kind of like already pretty far gone. So all of the things of like, why would you go to Madame Tussaud's wax? Why would you pick Nostradamus? Why would you like all of the whys kind of can get lampshaded because of that. But like the rest of the story doesn't make any more sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's no like 
attempt to explain to the point where like no drugs are mentioned by name it's unclear if like as i keep saying it's unclear if the writer doesn't know what's going on or if the characters don't know what's going on or both and everyone in the movie is very like nonchalant about a lot of things like Boussard's like in the room with Nostradamus's head, like yelling at it, like, you are Boussard. And Nostradamus is like, I'm Nostradamus. And then like the doctors are all just standing slightly outside the room, having a cigarette being like, yeah, I don't know, man. Do you think he'll be able to impose his will on Nostradamus? I don't know. Nostradamus is a pretty strong cat. Like, just (laughs) like, you know, like just casually talking about it. Yeah. That really makes it feel like there are no stakes here. And like, why Nostradamus? Like, I get that, like, because Bussard went to Madame Tussauds, but, like, why? why? Like, and I mean that on, like, a in-text level as well as, like, a meta-text. Like, why did the writers choose Nostradamus? Like, it's not like Nostradamus uses any of his, like, prophetic powers in the movie. Yeah, and it's not even, like... Like, you in the audience can mm. make the leap of, like, oh, stock market prophecies, okay. Mm-hmm. But the text itself doesn't actively do that. No, because all Boussard wants is a smart brain. Yeah. That can, like, analyze. And, like, why go for a brain that's been dead for 500 years? Like, you know, the the main thing that the doctor tells him is, like, oh, it has to be well-preserved. Like, go kill albert einstein and take his brain then or something you know like don't (laughs) why are you getting some dude from the 1500s so the plot makes no sense and then the movie has a ton of extraneous elements that are designed as filler yes like this is definitely one of those movies where if like a character is going from point a to point b we're gonna see them like walk out the front door walk to their car open the door to their car get in their car drive to the next location park get out go to the building, walk in the front door, put their hat on a coat rack. Like definitely one of those movies where we're going to see every step of everything so that we can drag out how much time everything takes as much as possible. And yet like there's all these storylines that don't matter that have been thrown Mm -hmm. in like Odette. Odette's entire like character and plot line is superfluous. Mm-hmm. Like if we're just talking about what does it achieve? Because theoretically what it should achieve is like she wants to have a bit more excitement in her life than just being Boussard's like, you know, pet canary. So she's going to have this affair with Lou and Lou's involved in trying to save Boussard's life with this complicated Nostradamus thing. So Odette's like, hey, if you want to be with me, sabotage Boussard's recovery and Lou's like I can't do that I'm a doctor but then he kind of comes around to it and he's gonna go kill the Nostradamus head when Nostradamus is like no don't kill me I know you want Boussard dead so that you can bang Odette but I'm already fucking up Boussard's whole life so you don't need to kill me because I'm doing it for you. I, I'm going to screw him over and then she'll come to you, man. It's all good. <laughs> and so like Nostradamus on his own for reasons that are not really given at all has decided to screw over Bassard. Like you can make the leap that it's because, you know, if you were woken up from death mm-hmm. and this old rich guy was yelling at you, like you're going to be me. You'd probably be like, all right, fuck this guy. But yeah. like why Nostradamus decides that, isn't really elaborated, but he was going to do it anyway. So if you cut Odette and Lou out of the movie entirely, it wouldn't make a difference to the story. Yeah. You need, you need him to be mad at Lou for having an affair with Odette so that he shoots Lou so that Merritt has to put Nostradamus's head on Lou's body, which again, doesn't make sense. Cause that again, you didn't save Lou's life. Where's Lou in any of this? You didn't save Nostradamus. His brain is clearly gone. Yeah, and there's no reckoning at the end for Merritt and Jean no. to go like, what have we done? They're just like, oh, shit. They Well, like, everyone's dead, I guess. Yeah, there's no like reckoning lives. about what kind of impact the scientific research that they're doing is. And part of that is also like, there's no like reason for their shit anyways like there's no justification of like by doing this we'll learn about how to better do 
brain surgeries. There's nothing given. So he literally is just a mad scientist. He's just super calm about it. Yeah, he's not. He's doing mad scientist stuff, but he's like not mad. Yeah. Right. But like this movie should have been made like. 15 years earlier yeah it so it feels very old-fashioned it feels like it's ripping off tropes and plot points like you know that thing where rip-off movies rip off plot points without really understanding why they exist yeah this movie's doing that but it's doing it for movies that are from 15 years ago yeah I think that's also why it feels so boring. Like a big part of the reason why it feels so boring is because the amount of stock footage and like Mm. seeing the travel from A to B to C, whatever. But it'd be like someone trying to like rip off like a born movie now. (laughs) It'd be like, what are you doing? It's 2021. It it just doesn't work. Nothing really happens as well. Or Um, or like it takes forever for for something to, to happen. And then when things do happen, they happen like really quickly. Like, I, I I turned to you at one point during the movie when like two characters were talking over the phone about nothing that like we were only seeing the boring parts of the story. Yeah. Cause like we don't even get the like monster on a rampage because that phone call is them being like, yeah, the monster's loose, but don't hurt him because they still want to like do science on him. There's like a whole conversation that Merritt has with like the local doc county doctor or something yeah the medical examiner who like becomes a character for one scene and this sounds like the most british person you've ever heard but like they have this conversation where Merritt's like doctor you're a doctor would you have done what i would have done doctor yes doctor i would have done the same thing in your position doctor and you're like why are we having this conversation i feel like that's an attempt to absolve it is anything from Merritt's hands and it's like mm. so this movie is 78 minutes long it takes yes correct oh god it takes 24 minutes for us to get to stealing Nosferatu's head we're 24 minutes in when that happens it's 20 minutes later that Nosferatu's head becomes alive yeah uh then there are 10 minutes left in the movie once they've grafted it onto Lou's body and eight minutes left in the movie when the monster actually gets on the loose. Yeah. The whole thing with Odette, the thing about it that bugs me the most, in addition to it being pointless, is that it's pointless and it's also like meaninglessly mean-spirited. Yes. It's very like, oh, these foreign women. So it feels very like misogynist, but also very like... But no one comes off good in it. Yeah. Like, because it's like, oh, well, Boussard's a shitty person because he's like an old rich guy with this like kept mistress and he's like really possessive and a huge asshole to her. Like the very first thing that happens in this movie is like he's talking to someone. She's on the phone in the other room. It's not like she's talking so loud that he can't have his conversation. He just bursts out of the room he's in, bursts into her room, grabs the phone from her, rips the cord out, throws it on the ground and leaves. So she can't talk on the phone. That's the first thing that happens in this movie. So he's shitty, which you'd think would be then being set up so that we'd feel sympathy for Odette. But Odette's kind of shitty too. Like she's positioned as someone who like goes out of her way to kind of cause trouble and like, be kind of a bee because she's trying to get back at him. So like she's seeing Lou mostly just for something to do. And then it's not like Lou is being positioned as like a hero who's going to save her from. No, he is a scumbag. Yeah, because he's being positioned as like, hey, baby, I saw you walking over there. Let's 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 go back to my place and have some. Like that's his character. Yeah. So none of these three people are sympathetic. No. At all. And then even Gene and Merritt. Yeah, they have like, it's like, it's like the writer knew that he was supposed to give characters like flaws or goals or desires and just didn't know how to do that because he's never like met people. <laughs> like, like, cause it's like, there's this conversation in between, a car. Yeah. That doesn't make, I could not make heads or tails of what it was trying to communicate. It's okay. So what it's trying to communicate is, um, almost a will they, won't they situation. Yeah. Uh, so it's implied through what they are saying, not through anyone saying it. Um, and, and not through like people, the way people are playing the characters that Jean loves merit. 
but Merritt is too much of a scientist to realize that love is right in front of him. And she goes, she's like being like, oh, uh, you don't even know what color my eyes are. And he's like, they're gray. Except like the conversation doesn't make sense. No, no. Because it starts out, they're talking in the car about events of the movie. And she's like, what do you think about that, doctor? And then he says, doctor, what's up with this doctor? Like, you can't you leave the lab behind? And then she Mm -hmm. starts on him about like, how he doesn't know the color of her eyes and he never leaves work. And like all he can think about is the lab. And it's like, wait, I thought that's what he was saying about you. And then she's like really pissed off at him. But then like, he's being like, well, maybe if you came out of your shell once in a while, like which of them is in love with the other person and which of them is accusing the other one of not noticing them. And then the next scene, the next scene yeah she's coming in uh because it's like the next work day yeah um and she's chipper as ever like there's no like no that scene is never acknowledged yeah and and it's even like weird because like the scene in the car i think ends with Merritt being like but you will be at work tomorrow right as if she's going to like quit over this argument in the car and she's like yes of course and she's like super bitter about it and she comes in the next day and she's like oh hey doc how's everyone doing and it's like what is happening? Yeah. That being said, like, y- yes, the interactions don't really make sense because they aren't clear, mm. but everything else in the movie is telegraphed so broadly, you can kind of see everything coming. Um, Which makes the fact that it takes forever to happen yeah. all the more frustrating. So it's it's kind of like, oh, I'm looking into the future and <laughs> I, I foresee a long, bad movie. Yes. The ending of the movie is nothing. Like, it's kind of interesting, the idea of Nostradam or sorry, Nostlu hanging himself, because um, I'm pretty sure Nostradamus committed suicide. Mm. Um, nothing explicitly says so, but you can read between the lines basically with his death. Okay. Um, and the idea of like, oh, he's mute. So Nostlu, like he, he is shump- shambling around. So he's probably in a ton of pain. And then the idea of like, it really looks like it's a church that they go yes. to. Um, so the then, only reason we think it's a school is because there's a shot that's intercut. That's not at the location of a character being like, they're going into the school. So the, the idea of like, oh, I'm going to hang myself on the church bell rope mm-hmm. is very interesting, but the movie does nothing with it. No. And it's like, like a lot of things in this movie, like the audience can make the leap and put two and two together and be like, ah, you know, some things were not meant to be. And like, he was an abomination of nature. And like, so he killed himself. Like you can make those connections, but the movie doesn't because like, there's nothing leading up to that. Mm -hmm. Like he just runs into a church up a stairway into the bell tower for no reason. And then Bassard follows him for again no reason because his established motivation in the scene was to get away from him yeah and like they don't even have a confrontation no um nothing in this ending happens because of a character taking action Bussard just like basically has a heart attack and dies like yeah. he basically just drops dead because the movie's over and then everyone's like oh wow and then yeah and then Noslu hangs himself when nobody's looking kind of yeah. thing the ending is just the characters running after each other up and down the same three streets haphazardly until the movie's over. Um, yeah. So there's like no building of tension. There's no attempts to scare. No. So uh, I don't think this is horror. Well, I don't know if this movie knows what it is because yeah. like it's, it's got it's not doing anything with purpose. No, it's like we do go to a crypt and like sever a dead guy's head at the 24 minute mark. So you're like, okay, okay, cool. This is becoming a horror movie. But like, you know, the woman who gets threatened and dies, that happens because Bassard decides to kill his mistress for no real good reason other than like, oh, I'm out of money and you left me. Like it's such a, that scene is so wild because it's such a like huge ramping up. Yeah. Out of nowhere. It feels almost like um at that point i was feeling more like a film noir yes and the thing is though is the scene where he kills her like it's not even good yeah like it's it's like he he's trying to choke her he chokes her out with like one of the necklaces he bought her which i'm sure worked like seemed clever on paper but like the actors can't 
pull it off at all. And it's really like limp. And that's sort of this whole like movie. movie. Um, you, you know, as I said, there's eight minutes left once we have a monster in this movie. So you keep like watching the movie going like, where is this going? What is this movie supposed to be about? Like, are we supposed to care about like when everyone was chasing after each other at the end, I was going like, am I supposed to be rooting for Bussard? Am I supposed to be rooting for the monster? Like whose side am I on? What am I supposed to care about here? Because I don't care about any of this. Yeah. It's just stuff going on screen. And then especially because Nasalu arrives like with eight minutes left in the movie with it being like, where did this even come from? It almost just felt like the writer was throwing spaghetti at the wall because they were like, I don't know how to end this. It feels like the writer put 78 blank pages in their typewriter. In their typewriter. Right. And just like went Stream until it was done. Like, this is okay, cool. That's a feature film. Done. Right. Like, you know, especially with the way that like, the plot happens faster the closer to the end of the movie you're at, where it's like at the start of the movie, it's like a a, a university student trying to like drag out a paper, being <laughs> like, you know, and then there's like five minutes of stock footage of cars driving around London while we travel from one place to another. Like, oh, they're going to France? Cool. We're going to see them buy a plane ticket, go to the airport, go through customs, get on a plane. Like, so they're dragging everything out. But then at the end of the movie, like we're going from like, Odette's been killed to Lou's been killed to Lou's got Nostradamus's head to uh, uh, Boussard is shooting the monster to they're running after each other to we're in a bell tower and now everyone's dead. Like at the very end as if the writer's like, oh shit, I have three pages left. Like I am kind of inclined to agree with you that I don't think this is horror. I did have a spot on the list picked out for it in case you wanted to rank it. But like, well, here's the thing. I don't think this is horror, Mm. but what do you think of it as a movie compared to the snow creature? So I think this is better than the snow creature and son of Ngagi on a technical level, which is to say that like individual shots, the editing in this movie is terrible. Individual shots in the movie look like shots from a real movie. The actors who are delivering this garbage dialogue are delivering it fairly competently like the movie looks like a real movie you know in a way that the snow creature and son of ngagi do not yeah um it's worse than those movies on a story level yeah on a story level this is a mess and and like doesn't work like the script is the thing that is the worst thing about this movie by far um so I was going to say 195, which would have put it above the snow creature mm-hmm. if we had ranked this. But it is something where, what do you care about more? Because I think the snow creature's story makes sense. Because the snow creature's story is basically just King Kong. Like, we go to yeah. an exotic place, we encounter a monster, we bring the monster back to America, it goes on a rampage, it dies. Well, that's part of why I'm like pretty confident about calling this not horror, even if it's like... I mean, you could make the case that it's an incompetent horror Mm, movie, mm. but the horror in Snow Creature is more tangible. You can tell what it's supposed to be. Yeah, versus The Man Without a Body. And so to me, that tells me, okay, Wilder knows how to make a horror movie. He's not making a horror movie here. Right. Like, this is a mad scientist movie, but this is just yet another one of these, like, mad scientist noir movies that for some reason were like a genre that I didn't know was a thing before doing this podcast, but that there was like 20 of in the forties and fifties. I don't know if it was just because someone realized like noirs are super cheap to make mad scientist movies are super cheap to make. And you know, you start with an idea for one or the other and you're like, how do I make it stand out in a crowded market? So you combo them and then everybody just does that anyways. But yeah, this, this movie sucks. Um, and I, I think if I knew whose point of view I'm supposed to be sympathizing with, I could figure out if this was like horror or not. But like, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like it's supposed to be from Broussard's point of view. In which case, like, I don't know what the fuck to make of this movie, man. (laughs) This is a bad movie. Well, what I can make of it is that it will be going on our miscellaneous part of the list. You can see the other movies that are part of that list by going to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. 
There you can also find the other episodes that we've mentioned today. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, um, make a case for The Man Without a Body to be horror, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can help the show out by leaving a rating or a review. Tell your friends about the show, uh, share it on social media. Uh, Word of mouth is how we grow our audience. If you'd really like to support what we do here, you can do it financially by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Thanks to the great generosity of our patrons we have made our 150 dollars goal and so we will be continuing with the bonus episodes for horror adjacent movies yes so as long as we kind of stay above that goal uh we will be doing an extra episode every month on movies that that aren't horror but are are related to horror and the next one will be on the 1999 the mummy yes coming out uh the last saturday of the month that's right So what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are going back to America. Uh, We are watching a little B-movie that I know very little about. It's called The Vampire. Okay. (laughs) See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.